0: Let's talk about Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Coleridge and Wordsworth were very good friends. They published lyrical ballads together, uh, which was the kind of the the founding poetic document of the Romantic movement in poetry. And the poem Tintern Abbey was the final poem in lyrical ballads. The first poem in that volume was The Rime of the Ancient Mariner and i think you can see some differences in style and tone between them by comparing those two poems obviously rhyme of the ancient mariner is not an autobiographical poem it's not the kind of psychological study that wordsworth usually does it's much more fantastical it's a it's a, it's a fantasy uh it's uh, in the realm of the imagination more than in the realm of kind of self reflection that wordsworth is in though Wordsworth valued the imagination as well So let's look at The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner Starts off It is an ancient mariner And he stoppeth one of three By thy long grey beard and glittering eye Now wherefore stopst thou me The bridegroom's doors are open wide And I am next of kin The guests are met, the feast is set Mayst hear the merry din He holds him with his skinny hand There was a ship, quoth he Hold off Unhand me, graybeard loon! soon's his hand dropped. He, he holds him with his glittering eye. The wedding guest stood still, and listens like a three years child. The mariner hath his will. So this is the opening incident, and it just comes out of the blue. Now notice, first of all, that none of the characters have names. They are the mariner and the wedding guest. Um. We don't get anything more about them than that. And the, the wedding guest is is stopped by this ancient mariner. And the beginning stanza, it says, he stoppeth one of three. So there are three people going into the, the wedding and the mariner picks out one of them. And uh, the, the wedding guest asks him, uh, you know, about his long ba- gray beard and his glittering eye. And then... Look where it talks about him hypnotizing the wedding guest. It says, he holds him with his glittering eye. The wedding guest stood still and listens like a three-year's child. Now, this happens a whole lot in this poem. There are these kinds of echoes and parallels. The glittering eye is a direct parallel. The stoppeth one of three and the three-year's child, the repetition of three there, um... And it, it sets up a kind of a, a, almost a kind of an echo chamber in the poem where things seem more resonant because they keep happening over and over again. Uh, you know, you see in the next stanza, it says, and thus uh, spake on that ancient man, the bright eyed mariner. Then you see, if you go down to line 40, that stanza ends with the same lines. Thus spake on that ancient man, uh, the bright-eyed mariner. Uh, those kinds of repetitions happen a lot in the poem. Uh, and they're part of the kind of almost hypnotic quality that it has. And of course, the poem is literally about uh, the hypnotic quality of storytelling. That's what the the mariner does. He grabs the wedding guests and holds him uh, almost in a, in a spell, uh, compelling him to listen to this. So he's telling the, the uh, story of this, this journey. And you can see around line uh, uh, 25, this stanza, The sun came up upon the left, Out of the sea came he, And he shone bright, And on the right went down into the sea. Now that's a very elaborate way of saying that he, they were going southward. Uh, now later on in the poem, Uh, the beginning of part two, they say, the sun now rose upon the right, out of the sea came he, still hid in mist and on the left went down into the sea. Um, So it's just um, reversing it, right? So now they're going, uh, instead of with the sun on their left, the sun's on their right. Instead of going south, they're going north. But the very precise parallelism of that again gives it a, a kind of an almost mythic resonant quality to the to the language uh and that's an effect that uh Coleridge cultivates throughout the poem he likes these uh these uh, uh echoes and the, the kind of, uh, of feeling like this is an ancient tale and you're kind of the, these phrases kind of are half remembered and recited over and over again it really gives it a feeling like that now. The story is they're going down to the, the South Pole, and they get trapped in the ice, right? Line, around line 60, the ice was here, the ice was there, the ice was all around. It cracked and growled and roared and howled like noises in a swound. And that's another thing. The, the, there's these kind of old-fashioned words, a swound. Uh, it means to faint. Or, you know, uh, earlier it said, eftsoons He his hand dropped He. Uh, it's deliberately using those old-fashioned words. Now, this is, I mean, to us, this is an old poem. But um, think about the, the, the diction and vocabulary in Wordsworth's poetry. It's not, it doesn't feel archaic the way that stuff that was written in the Renaissance or the Middle Ages does. So those, uh, those kind of vocabulary choices are something Coleridge is doing deliberately to give this the feel of something that's almost mythical, and, of course, uh, the story itself has this kind of fairy tale, mythical quality to it. You have the the albatross comes in. At length did cross an albatross. Through oh, the thorough the fog it came. As if it had been a Christian soul, we hailed it in God's name. Uh, it ate the food it ne'er had eat, and round and round it flew. The ice did split with th- with a thunder fit, the helmsman steered us through. So the arrival of the albatross corresponds with their being able to get out of the ice, you know, kind of being able to escape. And then the very last stanza of the part one, we get the wedding guest speaking again. God save the ancient mariner from the fiends that plague thee thus. Why lookst thou so with my crossbow? I shot the albatross now, this is the key moment of the poem. this is the, the turning point. Everything that happens in the poem follows from this, but notice that coleridge doesn 't give us any explanation for it whatsoever. Why did he shoot the albatross he doesn 't say what was go, you know what was going to do was he angry with it? Did he want food there 's no explanation given, and this is another thing that the poem does consistently. It sets up these mysteries and then kind of steadfastly refuses to give us a full understanding of them. Uh, it, again, it gives us this feeling, this kind of ancient poem that we, we can't quite understand all of the context of because it's so distant in the past. Look at the beginning in, of uh, part two, three stanzas in. And I had done a hellish thing and it would work him woe. For all averred I had killed the bird that made the breeze to blow, our wretch they said, the bird to slay that made the breeze to blow, nor red nor dim nor red, like God's own head, the glorious sun-up then all averred I had killed the bird that had brought the fog and mist. twas right they said, such bird to slay that bring the fog and mist, all right, now here, just right up against each other, these two stanzas one everybody is saying look you did a terrible thing you should that's the bird that brought the, the 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 breeze that allowed us to get out of the ice very next stanza that was the bird that brought the fog and mist that's the one that trapped us you were right to do it now i mean events in the poem make it seem like the first explanation might be a, a more accurate one but as it is here as you're reading it for the first time it's very confusing. I think it's very deliberately confusing. Was this a good thing that he did or a bad? There are two completely different explanations for that. Um, and another way that the, the, poem, the poem does this a lot in a lot of different ways, um, it's also just full of these kind of gorgeous resonant uh, lines, like around line 117, they 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 were as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Um, that's when the, you know, they've, they've gone out, there's no breeze. Uh, they're, they're, they're trapped there. They can't get any wind to sail away. Um, and of course the very, very famous lines, um, water, water everywhere. And all the boards did shrink water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. So they're surrounded by water, but it's salt water, of course. So it's not, not potable, um, but look at around line 131. Um, and in some dream assured were of the spirit that plagued us so. Nine fathoms deep he had followed us from the land of mist and snow. So this is a character, this, this spirit that follows them that seems to be cursing them, seems to be a malevolent spirit. Um, and here we get the, the, the side note. He said, a spirit had followed them. One of the invisible inhabitants of this planet, neither departed souls nor angels, concerning whom the learned Jew, Josephus, and the Platonic uh, Constantinopolitan Michael uh, uh, Sulus may be consulted. They are very numerous, and there is no climate or element without one or more. Now, that's the kind of note that gives you information without really telling you anything. What you want to know is who who is the spirit? Where did it come from? Is it the spirit of the albatross? Is it a spirit that lived there that you know knew the albatross? Is it uh is it fate? Is it god? Is it uh, uh, and we get this very kind of of academic explanation in the in the side note that doesn't really explain it to us. It feels in some it feels like it's giving information and it is, but it's not giving us information that makes everything clear. And sometimes these side notes just seem, almost seem comical in the way they're just repeating something that we know already happened. You know, he shot the albatross. Okay, yes, you know, we saw that. Um, and sometimes they're like this. They're giving us these kind of abstract, scholarly things that don't really help. That's, I think, a characteristic of the whole poem. It's giving us a lot of different perspectives and not clearly resolving them all for us. It's making us do all of that work. Now, part two ends with another kind of wonderful image. It says instead of the cross, the albatross they hunt was about my neck was hung uh, so the, you know the this has become a um, almost a cliche in our culture. you know an albatross around your neck, you know something something dumb that you have done that is is haunting you and is making trouble for everyone now. That's what you know. The albatross has come to mean, uh, and but that all comes from Coleridge. This is not actually an ancient story that he's telling. This is something that he made up all of him all by himself. Now, in part three, the the mariner sees a a little a, a speck uh, that uh, comes closer and closer to him, uh, and again, the, it's beautiful the way that uh, Coleridge uses repetition, like line one forty nine. At first it seemed a little speck, and there, it, and then it seemed a mist. It moved and moved and took at last a certain shape, I whist. A speck, a mist, a shape, I whist. And still it neared and neared. So that line, that first line of that stanza, a speck, a mist, a shape, I whist. It takes all of the key words from the previous stanza and crams them into one line. But again, part of what it's doing is that sense of almost hypnotic repetition of things. That comes in that gives this the the very strange quality to the whole story that he's telling and uh what we get what comes in this ship it turns out not to be a rescue but something much much worse um and we see around line 187 and is that woman all her crew is that a death and are there two is death that woman's mate so he's trying to figure out, see, is that he, all he can see is a woman. Is she the only one there? Is there a de- is the figure of death? Is there? Oh, wait, there are two? Are they are they married? Or Is she in this going out? Her lips were red. Her looks were free. Her locks were yellow as gold. Her skin was white as leprosy. The nightmare life and death was she who thicks man's blood with cold. So now we have the image of death and life in death is the woman. Uh, But again, all this is kind of very mysterious. It starts out as a series of questions, and then he tells us who it is, but he doesn't tell us how he knows that she is life in death. Um, The naked Hulk of this other ship alongside came, and, and the twain were casting dice. The game is done. I've won, I've won, quoth she, and whistled thrice so now again this scene they're, they're playing at dice and life and death the, the woman wins and all of the, the sailors die we see them at the you know by the end of the uh, of part 4 um, they drop down one by one the souls did fly did from their bodies fly they fled to bliss or woe and every soul it passed me by like the whiz of my crossbow again kind of a wonderfully resonant repetition of the idea of the crossbow um uh, which is what he used to shoot the albatross but think about this okay so this is a, a punishment right um all of the men die and this is life in death um is what would have happened if death had won would they all have died well they did all die except for the Mariner. And wait a minute, why is he living? Shouldn't he, isn't he the one who did it? Shouldn't he be the one who's be punished and all the others live? They're not the ones who shot the albatross. Um, now, one of the side notes says that, well, they agreed with it, so they're guilty too. Okay, but th- again, it's very its very confusing and nightmarish and it has a kind of a, a dream logic to it. You can see these horrible things happening and but there's not really a full understanding of, of why or what it all means. And again, I think that's deliberate. It's not that, you know, we're just dumb or that Coleridge was a bad writer. I think he's trying to make it difficult for us to piece together what all of this means and yet making us urgently want to know what it all means. Well, part four starts with the, um, uh, the wedding guest breaking in again. I fear the ancient mariner. I fear thy skinny hand, and thou art long and lank and brown as is the ribbed sea sand. I fear thee and thy glittering eye and thy skinny hand so brown. Fear not, fear not, thou wedding guest. This body dropped not down. So, w- the wedding guest was afraid that he's talking to a ghost, and, and the, the mariner says, "Oh no, 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 I, I was still alive." And we find out that the, the, the life in death is what happens to him. He's alive, but wishes he were dead. And he says, this, this body dropped not down. Um, and then, alone, alone, all, all alone, alone on a wide, wide sea, and never a saint took pity on my soul in agony. Again, just the the power of those repetitions. Alone, alone, all, all alone, alone on a wide, wide sea. Uh, just even if you didn't know English and just heard that, you would know it was there was something melancholy it was talking about. It's got a beautiful, just the the sounds of the poem. And in line two forty, it says, "I looked upon the rotting sea, and drew my eyes away. I looked upon the rotting deck." and there the dead men lay. I looked to heaven and tried to pray, but or ever a prayer had gushed, a wicked whisper came and made my heart as dry as dust. So there's nowhere for him to look. He looks, the sea is rotting, the deck is rotting with dead men on it, looking to heaven and trying to pray. He can't do that. He said, I closed my lids and kept them closed, and the balls like pulses beat. So now he's just closing his eyes to this, trying to... uh, uh, endure what's happening to him. And he says in line 257, an orphan's curse would drag to hell a spirit from on high, but oh, more horrible than that is the curse in a dead man's eye. Seven days, seven nights I saw that curse and yet I could not die. So here he has all his dead shipmates with their dead eyes staring at him. So we have this kind of phantasmagoric you know gothic horrible uh image of what's happening to him and he sees starting in line uh, 272 he sees the the water snakes that moving in the in the uh, at night in the water and they they reared an elvish light there's the idea of that that phosphorescence that they 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 shed and watching them he says oh happy living things line 282 O happy living things, no tongue their beauty might declare. A spring of love gushed from my heart, and I blessed them unaware. Sure my kind saint took pity on me, and I blessed them unaware. The self-same moment I could pray, and from my neck so free, the albatross fell off and sank like lead into the sea. So, here's a a moment that is uh, obviously a clearly a turning point. He's a a moment where he blesses these water snakes. He he sees them as beautiful. And that's obviously, in some ways, the opposite of what he did with the albatross, which he was willing to shoot and kill. Or maybe it's obvious. He didn't say that's the reason he shot and killed it. But we do know the albatross falls from his neck like lead into the sea. So it just falls away from him. Uh, And he can pray. His saint... Uh, took pity on him before no saint would hear him. Now a saint has taken pity on him, and he's come to a, a huge turning point in the poem. And in part five, he falls asleep. Oh, sleep, it is a gentle thing, beloved from pole to pole. To Mary Queen the praise be given. She sent the gentle shilly from heaven that slid into my soul. The silly buckets on the deck that had so long remained. I dreamt that they were filled with dew, and when I awoke, it rained. So here's uh, this moment, that the, the sleep that comes literally from, from heaven, from Mary, the mother of God. And he, he dreams that there was dew in the in the water buckets. And when he wakes up, it's raining. My lips were wet. My throat was cold. My garments were all, all were dank. Sure, I had drunken in my dreams and still my body drank. So now I uh, get almost literally like a, a dream come true. And then, then he hears a roaring wind. Um, uh, it, it did not come come near, but with its sound it shook the sails that were so thin and sear. And look at um, oh, line 318. And the coming wind did roar more loud and the sails did sigh like sedge. And the rain poured down from one black cloud. The moon was at its edge. The thick black cloud was cleft and still, the moon was at its side, like waters shot from some high crag. The lightning fell with never a jag, and the river a river steep and wide now again, look at the 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 kind of the repetitions there. The rain poured down from one black cloud, the thick black cloud was cleft you know the moon was at its edge, uh, and still the moon was at its side. Uh, It doesn't exactly repeat, but it almost repeats, and it it gives you that, that, uh, again, almost rhyming lines and ideas uh, that give this kind of sing-song, hypnotic quality to the whole thing. Uh, And we get another one of those repetitions at line 345. The, The wedding guest breaks in again. I fear the ancient mariner, be calm, thou wedding guest twas not those souls that fled in pain which to their courses came again but a troop of spirits blessed so this time the mariner the, the wedding guest was upset that the, the bodies had been reanimated souls have come into them and the, but the mariner tells him no don't don't worry that it's not a uh, this is not a bad thing these are these are spirits blessed that came in for when it dawned they dropped their arms and clustered round the mast sweet sounds rose slowly through their mouths and from their bodies past. Uh, so you get these uh, almost these angelic spirits uh, that are helping him out. They've animated the, the bodies of his uh, shipmates so they can work the, the, the ship and sail it back to safety. Look at the stanza starting line 377. Under the keel nine fathom deep from the land of mist and snow, the spirit slid, and it was he, that made the ship to go. The sails at noon left off their tune, and the ship stood still also. So now we've got that that spirit. Remember that the foot, the side note told us about what it was, but didn't really explain what it was. And here again, we get another side note: the lonesome spirit from the South Pole carries the ship as far as the line, in obedience to the angelic troop, but it still requireth vengeance. Now that's telling us a lot more than the poem has actually ever told us about wait, so the this spirit is being controlled by the angels and but it's taking it that far and not farther? Well wait, if if it's making the ship to go, isn't that a good thing? Isn't it helping out now? Um no, it still wants vengeance. Well wait, if it wants vengeance, why isn't it why is it helping him? Um the 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 poem again never bothers to explain all of this. And it gives you contradictory explanations when it does. Um, But we have the the mariner falls into a a faint, and he hears these two voices that start off at the the end of of part five and into the beginning of part six. And the the first voice says, line 398, Is it he, quoth one, is this the man by whom he... By him who died on cross, with his cruel bow, he laid full low, the harmless albatross. Notice, by the way, the word cross keeps being uh, associated with albatross, obviously a rhyme, but also the crossbow. They hung the albatross on his neck instead of a cross. And here, by him who died on cross, by Jesus the spirit who bideth by himself in the land of mist and snow. He loved the bird that loved the man who shot with him with his bow. So here is another explanation of the spirit. The spirit dwells in you know, the south in the mist of snow. Says, so, And he, the spirit, loved the bird that loved the man who shot him with his bow. So... This is kind of punishment for that. But wait, the the albatross loved the the mariner? Uh, That was never clear before. Then the other voice comes in. Uh, The man hath penance done, and penance more will do. And we continue into part six, these voices. But tell me, tell me, speak again, thy soft response renewing. What makes the ship drive on so fast? What is the ocean doing? Second voice. Still, as a slave before his lord, the ocean hath no blast. His great bright eye, most silently, up to the moon is cast, if he may know which way to go, for if he may know which way to go, for she guides him, smooth or grim. See, brother, see how graciously she looketh down on him. Now, that is amazingly difficult to untangle. Again, it's a question that's being asked in the poem what's the ocean doing? How is it doing it? So, well, the ocean is not doing anything. There's no wind to do it. And his bright eye, wait, whose bright eye? And most silently up to the moon is cast. Is that the spirit's great eye? Um, If he may know which way to go, for she guides him smooth or grim. All right. But the note said earlier, it was the angels who were guiding the spirit, not the moon. Again, we've got conflicting interpretations of this. Um, the first voice realizes it hasn't been given an explanation and says, but why drives on the ship so fast without or wave or wind? It says, the air is cut away before and closes from behind. Fly, brother, fly, more high, more high, or we shall be belated. For slow and slow that ship will go when the mariner's trance is abated. Now again, that's an explanation that says the air is cut away before and closes from behind. Well, yeah, when you move, the, there's the air moves out in front of you and closes back when you move forward. Uh, is that why it's moving? Uh, but okay, that just makes another question: Why is that happening? Uh, again, almost every explanation in the in the poem gives just leads to more questions. Uh, makes things more, not less, mysterious. And after the mariner. Wakes up. Oh, by the way, another thing that this poem leads you to ask but never gives any possible explanation for is, how does the mariner know what these two voices said? Was this a dream that he had while he was asleep? Uh, I, I presume it was. Um, Four thirty 430, Line 434, all of the, the dead men are standing on the deck, all stood together on the deck for a charnel dungeon fitter. All fixed on me their stony eyes that in the moon did glitter. The pang, the curse with which they died, had never passed away. I could not draw my eyes from theirs, nor turn them up to pray. So here again, that, that being the curse of a dead man's eye, and its effect on him. And now the smell, spell was snapped. Once more I viewed the ocean green, and looked far forth, yet little saw, of what had else been seen. Now, the curse is snapped again. Why? What happened? We don't know that any more than we know why he killed the albatross. the The wind comes and uh, and leads him. You know, blows the ship into into port. Line four sixty. Swiftly, swiftly flew the ship. Yet she sailed softly too. Sweetly, sweetly blew the breeze. On me alone it blew, again those repetitions swiftly, swiftly, sweetly, sweetly, blew the ship, uh, flew the ship, blew the breeze, um, it, it kind of it feels, you know, almost like a, a magic incantation, and that next stanza, oh, dream of joy, is this indeed the lighthouse top I see? Is this the hill? Is this the kirk? Is this mine own country? So now the, the mariner is returning home. And if you go back to line 23 uh, of the poem, when it talks about when he was leaving uh, the harbor, the ship was clear, cheered, the harbor cleared, merrily did we drop below the kirk, below the hill, below the lighthouse top. And now here they are uh, reversed, right? Is this the, the lighthouse top I see? Is this the hill? Is this the kirk? Kirk is a church. Is this mine own country? So again, that be- those beautiful repetitions here are kind of a mirroring of the departure and the return, um, and we also get his his prayer. And I, with sobs, did pray. Prayer is a is another uh, repetition that happens throughout the poem. His ability when he can pray, when he can't, what what he prays for, um, and now he sees all the spirits leaving the the bodies of the dead men. Around line uh, 484, a little distance from the prow, these crimson shadows were. I turned my eyes upon the deck. O Christ, what saw I there? Each course, corpse, body, each course lay flat, lifeless and flat, and by the holy rood, a man all light, a seraph man, on every course there stood. This seraph band each waved his hand. It was a heavenly sight. They stood as signals to the land, each one a lovely light. This seraph band each waved his hand. No voice did they impart. No voice but, oh, the silence sank like music on my heart. But soon I heard the dash of oars. I heard the pilots cheer. Okay, So now these uh, spirits, uh, there are crimson, red spirits uh, that uh, become a light that uh, draws people to, towards the ship so he can be rescued. Um, and he sees the, the boat. And again, there are no names here. He's rescued by the pilot, uh, the, the pilot's boy, and the hermit. Um, these are all kind of archetypal figures. They're no, You know, this, is, this isn't Bob, John, and Tom. Uh, th- these are the pilot and the hermit. Um, look at that last stanza of part six. I saw a third, I heard his voice, it is the hermit good. He singeth loud his godly hymns that he, that he makes in the wood. He'll shrive my soul, he'll wash away the albatross's blood. So the hermit is going to cleanse him of his sinfulness, of the, the sin of killing the albatross. But I thought he had already been cleansed of that. It dropped like lead into the sea, and that's why he got off. But no, no, it's not. Notice also that there are three people here. And remember at the beginning of the poem, he stoppeth one of three, another one of these kind of beautiful resonances in the poem. And so these uh, this trio rescues him, uh, but they they wonder now that the "'Where those lights were that they saw?' Or on line uh, 525, "'Where are those lights, so many and fair, "'that signal made, but now?' "'Strange by my faith,' the hermit said, "'and they answered, not our cheer. "'The planks looked warped, "'and see those sails, how thin they are and sere. "'I never saw aught like to them, "'unless perchance it were "'brown skeletons of leaves that lag "'my forest brook along.' When, they, when the ivy tod is heavy with snow and the owlet whoops to the wolf below that eats the she-wolf's young. Uh, so this is kind of grim uh, imagery here that the, the hermit's bringing up. Uh, Dear Lord, it hath a fiendish look, the pilot made reply. I am afeard. Push on, push on, said the hermit cheerily. Now notice how that echoes the interactions between the mariner and the wedding guest, the, the you know, the wedding guest is always afraid and the uh, mariner has to reassure him. Here we get the pilot who's afraid and the hermit reassuring him. So they rescue the mariner, but look, line uh, 545, the ship goes down. It says, Under the water, it rumbled on, still louder and more dread. It reached the ship, that is this whirlpool. It split the bay. The ship went down like lead. Now, what else have we seen fall like lead into the sea? Oh, yeah, the albatross, another one, kind of an echo. So the ship sinks down into the sea, away from the mariner, exactly the way the albatross did. He's lost that as well. Now, look at the reactions that these people have to him. Line 560, I moved my lips. The pilot shrieked and fell down in a fit. The holy hermit raised his eyes and prayed where he did, where he did sit. I took the oars, the pilot's boy, who now doth crazy go, laughed loud and long, and all the while his eyes went to and fro. Ha ha, quoth he, full plain I see, the devil knows how to row. Now, the reactions to the mariner are not like the reactions to a man who is blessed and holy and learned his lessons. He's literally, they call him the devil. The pilot uh, shrieks and has, falls down in a fit the, the hermit has to pray he's become a kind of a, a demonic figure but hasn't, wait, hasn't he been redeemed? Uh, isn't that the point of all of this? And the mariner thinks he hasn't been, he asks the um, the hermit, oh shrive me shrive me holy man the hermit crossed his brow say quick quoth he I bid thee say what manner of man art thou "'Forthwith, this frame of mine was wrenched with a woeful agony, "'which forced me to begin my tale, and then it left me free.' "'So he was compelled to tell this whole story to the hermit. "'Since then, and at uncertain hour, that agony returns, "'until my ghastly tale is told, this heart within me burns. "'I pass like night from land to land. "'I have strange power of speech.' The moment that this face I see, I know the man that must hear me. I tell I to him my tale. I teach. So, another kind of repetition. He has to continually repeat this tale to people. He has a compulsion to do it. Um, That again is never explained. Like so much in this poem, is this his penance? Um, Is is this a punishment? Uh, is this the way he's earning his uh, his salvation never really explained and then we get back to the 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 the, the frame of the story what loud uproar burst from that the, that door the wedding guests are there but in the garden bower the bride and bridemaid singing are and hark the little vesper bell which biddeth me to prayer now, the, the idea of the, being at the wedding and missing the the wedding has gone on this whole time. You know, behind, behind the scenes, the wedding guest missed out on the wedding, and here we see the end of it. Uh, and that too has a kind of a, a, a almost like mythological, uh, biblical resonance. Uh, there are several parables that Jesus tells about uh, 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 wedding guests, about uh, the the bridegroom and the, the the bridesmaids who were there and waiting for the wedding. Um, and that's all kind of in the background here, so this is something kind of grand and mystical, but it's it's not um never again never quite nailed down and as it winds down, look around line six ten farewell, farewell, but this I tell to thee, thou wedding guest, he prayeth well that love who loveth well, both man and bird and beast, he prayeth best who loveth best all things both great and small for the dear god who loveth us he made and loveth all now a lot of people take that as the the kind of the the moral of the poem the the, the mariner seems to be presenting this as the moral of the story uh, you know just you know he it, it, he didn't have enough love in his heart that's why he didn't shoot the albatross you know he should love both man and bird and beast um uh, you know bird is in nicely in the middle there, um, and love is all things, both great and small, um, well, okay, uh, but if he 's learned that lesson, why is he still being punished, or is he need, has to teach that lesson to others, and why does he need, why did he need to tell it the story to the hermit and why to the wedding guest? Um, is there something special about them? The mariner, whose eye is bright, whose beard with age is hoar, is gone, and now the wedding guest turned from the bridegroom's door. He went like one that hath been stunned and is of sense forlorn. A sadder and a wiser man he rose the morrow morn. All right, so think about the effect that this story has on the wedding guest. Like one who had been stunned of sense forlorn. That sounds like several moments in the poem of with the mariner and what happened to him being literally falling down in a, in a, in a faint uh, of sense forlorn. Uh, and a sadder and a wiser man, he rose the morrow morn. Well, wait, why is he sadder? Um, isn't this a it, hasn't he learned a lesson and isn't this a good thing? Uh, it's just like he's had this experience and it's impacted him. It's made him sadder and wiser. Um, but again, the the, the whole poem is so tantalizingly close to explaining things and, and it almost feels like it is explaining things until you think about it. And then you say, like, Oh wait, that doesn't really explain at all. Um, I think part of the reason this poem is so resonant that it has been so um, continually popular, and this is one of the, maybe the most popular narrative poem in the English language, um, is just that sense that there, there's a story here and all the elements are there, and if you had the key, you could put them all together, but you can never quite find the key, so you keep looking. Um, it, it's uh, it, it continually... Uh, demands and and refuses to give you answers. Um, it, it's, uh, I think, a, a beautiful poem in that way. Uh, uh, most uh, poets would have either just nailed things down so everything was very nice and clear and telling a story or made it completely kind of vague and mysterious, but... Uh, Somehow Coleridge manages to do both at once. Uh, It's a simple, straightforward story that is also kind of deeply mysterious and open to many different interpretations. Uh, Kind of a beautiful uh, accomplishment for Coleridge. Uh, Well, I said that I would talk also today about Kublai Khan, but I really don't have enough time to go through it. So I'm going to talk about Kublai Khan at the beginning of next uh, class lecture. Uh, In addition, we're also going to look at the poems of Lord Byron. Now, Byron was one of the most famous of the Romantic poets during his lifetime. He was kind of a a celebrity. He was a superstar uh, and incredibly popular. Uh, And I've given you uh, several shorter poems of his. Uh, the, The big one that we'll be looking at is uh, child harold's pilgrimage now child harold is the herald is the um, a, a figure who is one example of what's been come to be known as the byronic hero that's this kind of hero created by byron uh, and Byron was himself and lived his life in a way as a kind of Byronic hero figure, but he also wrote about them. And many of his Child Herald is in some ways uh, a reflection of his own life and his own views. So I want you to think about Child Herald and what he's like. The Byronic hero is kind of a, a rebellious outsider, anti hero. Uh, it, it's so much a part of our culture that we, it, we don't even recognize it almost. Um, but think about how what he's like how what kind of a a person is he what in what sense is he heroic uh what's interesting about him and also look at some of the the other poems particularly she walks in beauty and so Will go no more a roving uh those are both poems that are just endlessly Reprinted, they're they're in all kinds of anthologies, and they're the kinds of poems that people memorize. And I want you to think about why that is. What's uh, what's special about those poems? What kind of grabs the minds and the ears of people that makes them uh, like those poems? Um, So we will talk a little bit about Kubla Khan, uh, and then we will uh, talk. Spend most of the uh, the hour next time talking about Lord Byron and his poetry. Uh, Thank you for your attention this time, and I will talk to you next time.